arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. From the fire into the frying pan, Jones and Coco head north after dropping Franny off at the airport. Investigating Phil Curran creates new revelations and problems. Here are the final chapters of Johnny's Back in Town by R.P. Fitton, beginning right now. Johnny's Back in Town, Chapter 12, 93 North, Dawson, New Hampshire, January 13th, 8.30 a.m. From the airport, Jones and Coco headed north, the sun like a strobe light through the snow-laced tree branches on a freezing cold day with scant high cirrus clouds in the blue sky. North of Concord, the rolling mountain landscape maintained a modicum of snowfall, but the distant peaks were smooth white. Lucky Franny, your sister lives in Redondo Beach. It's beautiful and warm all year round. Now ain't that nice, said Coco sarcastically. I wouldn't mind coaching out there. Oh really? California is wacko. Why is California wacko? asked Jones, gazing up at the massive granite ledges where the highway cut through. Have you ever been out there? Yeah, I knew a chick in Marina Del Rey. And she was wacky, asked Jones. Come on, Jonesy, everybody out there has a story. So you judge everyone in California by these people and the girl. Yeah. Jones grinned at his friend. Maureen, Franny's sister, lives in a suburban neighborhood, two miles from the beach. Jonesy, you live two miles from the beach. Well, I'm not jumping in the ocean in January. Franny wouldn't mind living out there once we're married. Yeah, right. I told you, Jonesy, you're a pain in the culo. Jones's cell sounded. Thias, it's Kevin. Bum is under arrest. You're kidding, said Jones, holding out the phone. Bum is under arrest. Amen. Where did you find him, under a rock? Asked Jones. Coco laughed. <laughs> Just him, no Trixie. Bum said she went underground, whatever that means. Caught him at the border whistling Camp Town races. We questioned him over Zoom. He wouldn't answer. Then the FBI threatened him with jail time. Long story short, Pura paid Bum 500 bucks for the storage room key. Incredible. Did Pereira tell Bum what was about to go down at the Bolorama? Asked Jones. No. Bum knew nothing about the shooting, but it's been explained to him by Dom and Herbert Lane why the key was so important. You're like this. He was trying to leave when the lights went out. Bum was one of the few people in the alley who knew where the electrical panel was. He simply flipped on the master switch. Nothing to do with Pereira, who was running down Washburn Ave. And finally, Bum's car is missing. It could be under the ice back at Long Pond. Consider that a blessing. What happens to Bum? He'll be charged down there by INS for trying to enter Mexico without a passport, then extradited up here as an accessory to murder. Coco brought the vet into the fast lane to get by a tourist googling the granite mountains. Do you think he knows more? Like, why did he end up playing craps in the men's room just before the shooting started? And then he and Trixie put on the earplugs. Lane asked him that on the Zoom. He said something didn't seem right, which is probably what happened. And then he and Trixie put on the earplugs. She can't have gone very far.
far from El Paso. I hear you taking a couple days downtime at Matthias. Like, I believe that. Thanks for the update, Kevin. Keep in touch. He cut the line and looked over at Coco, driving with one hand. I knew that punk was involved in this. He paid Bump $500 for the key. Where do you think Pereira is now? P.W. Moron doesn't know nothing. And he fired at the wall. Jonesy, listen to me. No mechanic is going to bring a dimwit like Pereira into his operation. No way. Somebody did. Pereira will be booked for murder. On another note, what? Is Driscoll going to marry Dewey's sister? I don't think so. <laughs> That's one wedding I'd stay clear of. They'll hold it down at the animal shelter. Jones grinned. I got a call from a guy in Dedham, Massachusetts. Coco paused and looked ahead, then he erupted. You're telling me that somebody at random called you from Dedham, Massachusetts? Yeah. Well, the x-ray ain't there no more. It's all suburbia now, Jonesy. Where's Dom Fiore? Forget Dom. He's out in Chicago. But he has connections with Vegas. Dom's afraid to be in Vegas for obvious reasons. Even in Chicago, he's careful. Stays in the shadow, under other names. How do you prove Dom poses your father at the x-ray? I got my own problems. Let John S. Stefani solve that one. What does the S stand for? Salvatore. Is that your middle name? Jonesy, go watch the scenery, will ya? A craggy mountain ledge, with snow sifted in the angled rocks, appeared through the bare trees, high above a steel blue pond. I've never been up past Concord, said Jones. It's not Concord, it's Concord. Then why not spell it that way? What are you, a speech coach? asked Coco. Why are there historical markers out here? Jones tried to read the bronze plaques. Used to be the old man in the mountain, said Coco as he lit a cigarette. You mean carved like Mount Rushmore, asked Jones, looking up at the fallen rocks shaved off the mountainside. No, it was a natural thing. Looked like an old man from the side. We'll stop on the way back. Jones nodded. What happened to it? <laughs> the old man fell down. It collapsed. You know, gravity. Oh, said Jones. Shame. Real shame. It was a pile of rocks, Jonesy. Who cares? Who cares? Coco maneuvered the vet along the narrow and curvy tree-lined Kangamangas Highway. He slowed at the towns and scenic areas overlooking the sunlit valleys and mountain canyons. I say we meet with the assistant dean first, said Coco, then check into the motel, Tangent Mountain Hotel. You want good eats, Jonesy? Sure. Jones, like watching a movie, stared at the snow-covered mountains rolling by above the vet. The Trading Post Restaurant, two miles. I didn't think you were fond of the country, Coco, said Jones as they passed the sign. I was a kid when I first came up north. Brought my real first girlfriend up here. Uncle Dulio was home from the Navy on leave and covered for me. My mother ain't stupid, she knew. She just didn't want me to know she knew. What does she know now? I think she unloaded everything on Phillips, said Coco in a lower voice. Jones nodded. A stretch of snow-sprayed tree trunks and green needle branches lined the snowbanks near the crest of the bare asphalt highway. The northern side's gradual slope revealed an elongated lake west of the highway and a man-made knoll to the right swept up to a massive block building with brown fascia board and white stucco facade. 
Foggy smoke twisted up from the white brick chimney spaced along the extended roof. Coco's blinker made a repeating popping noise as he brought their vet onto cleared road. This is a big place, said Jones. Right. Jonesy, I was thinking about what you asked me. Which time? Something about Dominic Fiore ain't right. He's still alive, Charlie told me. Somebody's protecting him. And Charlie had no answers, asked Jones. Coco shook his head. What about Albert Fiore himself? Coco pulled into a space in front of a steep granite stairway to the front doors. He's got Albert Fiore's in jail. He's got no reason to take out McLaughlin. Unless Dominic wanted him to, said Jones as Coco cut the engine. No, Jonesy, Dom had the power himself to pull strings out of Chicago. Jones lifted himself out of the vet. Then why? We're going in circles, said Coco from the other side of the car. Let's just get the skinny on current. Assistant Dean Rosemary Warren, said Jones. They started up the steep stairs, the road salt grinding into the granite, toward a bulky wood panel door. I'm going to ask her about just what were Phil's responsibilities. Then we can talk to the department heads. I'll put down a C-note that they all hated Curran up here, too, said Coco. Jones opened the door for him. All of them 100%? Yeah, I'll take that bet, even odds, said Jones, brushing his feet on the corrugated mat. Coco raised his clenched fist and tapped knuckle to knuckle. They climbed a nubby set of stairs into a voluminous lobby that looked more like a lodge. Girls in blue blazers and blue plaid skirts carried their books as they crossed the lobby. Jones spoke with the receptionist at the center table. She directed them upstairs to the office at the far end of the surrounding mezzanine. The office door at the end was open. The area had a pleasant old smell like the interior of a wood-framed church or a railroad station with a wood-paneled interior. A stout woman in a ruffled blouse and gray skirt looked up as Jones approached the paneled office. Ms. Warren? Miss Warren? Yes, Miss Warren. We drove up from Hamilton College. I'm Mr. Jones, and this is Mr. Stefani. I believe you received Mr. P.J. Fletcher's phone call yesterday. Yes, I did, she said, smiling. She pronounced her words precisely. Your new president, Mr. Fletcher, said you would be by. What can I help you with, gentlemen? man that used to work here, Phil Curran. Miss Warren's sociable smile dropped away instantly. Mr. Curran is not one of our favorites here at Houghton. Her lips pursed and wrinkled. If I am an adequate judge of human character, I would surmise that Hamilton College may have an technical problem. Yeah, you got that right, said Coco. Mr. Curran is a little pushy, said Jones. A little pushy? That's the tip of the iceberg, said Miss Warren, erupting as she stood. She picked up the black desk phone and dialed an extension. I think it's best that you meet with our president, Mr. Milton Cavendish. What seems to be the problem, asked Jones. Yes, Beverly, do you be so kind as to let Dr. Cavendish know that the people from Hamilton College are here. Very good. She hung up the phone, and her lips still tight, and she squinted before she spoke. Dr. Cavendish will be right down. Thank you, said Jones. Coco signaled Jones outside the office. Excuse us, Miss Warren. Certainly, replied Warren as she sat down again. 
Jones followed Coco to the edge of the mezzanine and the huge window wall separating five towering spans overlooking the front expanse to the road. Just a thought, Jonesy, but the old bag hates Curran's guts. This isn't over if you're looking for your hundred dollars. No, that's not it. Curran's like a steamroller. He comes in, scoops up the money. No wonder he is recommended. They wanted him the hell out of here. I agree. There's always been something about Phil that bothers me. We'll tell this all to PJ and then get Phil out of Hamilton. The rotund Cavendish in a gray suit stepped from the elevator. He wobbled across the mezzanine. Gentlemen, I thank you for stopping by, he said in a whimsical voice as he shook their hands. His double chin vibrated when he spoke. Milton Cavendish, I understand why you're here. Let me first say that Philip Curran was one of the slickest men I have ever met. Well, he does have a way about him, answered Jones as the three men wandered toward the huge window vista. Cavendish spoke as he stared across the snow to the highway. I was elated when Rosemary told me your school president had called and there would be a subsequent visit. What do you mean, slick? asked Coco. Cavendish bit his lower lip and then fiddled with his gold-rimmed glasses. How do I put this without engaging in a civil suit? No one's gonna sue no one, Cavendish, said Coco. Was Phil taking money, asked Jones. Cavendish raised his bushy brows. Well, that's just it. We don't know how much he raised, and more importantly, we don't know how those funds were distributed. To whom? asked Jones. The school president shook his head. A pittance to the departments. I had numerous complaints from the professors. And when questioned, Philip said to talk to his legal representatives. Outrageous is what it was. Where are those people now? asked Coco. He stalled and then gave us a Florida address. The firm again and again did not return our calls. And our school lawyers were threatened. What's the name of the firm? asked Jones. Don't bother, said Cavendish, his contorted face tinted red. Last week, one of the lawyers told us that all of business had been transferred to another firm. And now the same thing is beginning. What's that all about? asked Jones. We're going to court once we have a handle on what happened with the departments and other matters. How are you going to do that? asked Coco. That's why I agreed to speak to you today. If you gentlemen can get an understanding of how this was set up, then maybe we can begin our depositions. Do you think Phil Curran pocketed money? asked Jones. Off the record, absolutely. What do you think, Mr. Jones? My opinion is Phil is obnoxious, pushy, and successful in fundraising. Cavendish nodded and adjusted his glasses again as he was about to send out one final barrage at Phil. His voice quivered and he accentuated every word. I give my heart and soul to this school. Shame on me that I don't know exactly what Philip did with the scholarship fundraising and his cover-ups. But if he used this school for his own benefit, Cavendish waved his index finger. Then, by God, I'll have him put away for life. You ever talked to Curran about this? asked Coco. No, he never understood the extent of this calamity until he was gone. What was I to do? I couldn't prove anything. There's no donor list. Jones thought about Chet McLaughlin. Did a man named Chet McLaughlin ever call anyone here at Houghton? Name doesn't ring a bell. Who is he? Professor at Hamilton, Accounting and Economics. Accounting. 
Jones handed him his card. Cavendish turned to Coco. You have a card? I don't do cards, said Coco. Oh. Jones bit his lips so he wouldn't smile. You might want to start with Meg Rostow, Medieval Languages. Her office, number 39, is on the sixth floor. Did she lose money? asked Jones. You talk to Meg. She'll tell you about Philip Curran, said Cavendish. Yeah, we'll get back to you, advised Coco. Thank you, Mr. Cavendish, said Jones. We'll find out what was going on up here. Keep me in the loop. As Cavendish meandered back toward Warren's office, Jones leaned toward Coco. Let's talk to Meg Rostow. They continued to the brass-framed elevator. Jones then turned abruptly. I think Phil Curran ordered the hit on Chet. Coco's shoes seemed to leave the floor. Are you kidding me, Jonesy? An idiot like Curran doesn't have the connections to call up a contract. He's a conniver, a nobody. Is he? asked Jones as the elevator opened. Then they stepped into the wood-paneled car. He pushed the button for the sixth floor. Hey, you're giving this guy more credit than he's worth. The doors opened and they walked toward a smaller sixth-floor window in the lobby. Jones gazed across the road, beyond the woods to the ice-covered lake reflecting the winter sun. He had a strong feeling about Phil Curran being responsible for Chet's murder because of Chet's audit. Even with Pereira having been in the area when the bomb went off, Phil Curran's prior life, as secretive and mysterious as it was, loomed over the money investigation. Hey, beautiful dreamer, said Coco. Jones continued to look out the window. What if Chet was confronting Phil about past and maybe some irregularities in the Hamilton departments? You don't get it, bro. You gotta nail somebody with evidence before you go after them. Not necessarily. What are you talking about? Let Phil think we know whatever it was that got Chet killed, said Jones as he started down the stairs. Yeah, is that one of your investigating tricks, Jonesy, or your old man's? No on both counts, but Dad would approve. Okay, Jonesy, and what if Curran is behind all this? You want to get shot at again? No, I don't, answered Jones. Listen, we'll check into the motel and chow down at the trading post. They walked into the corridor. He could see that Coco might be thinking about his first visit to Moose Mills. What was her name? asked Jones. Megan. She ended up on Wall Street and I ended up on Front Street. What's wrong with that? asked Jones. Nothing. Nobody knows about Megan except Uncle Dulio. She was a good kid. Jones raised his brows. Hey, I didn't say anything. You didn't have to, Jonesy. Jones walked ahead and knocked on door 39. A short woman wearing a crocheted brown and yellow shawl opened the door. She had wide brown eyes. Can I help you, gentlemen? She asked. We're looking for Meg Rostow, said Jones. I am she. Ms. Rostow, I'm Matthias Jones from Hamilton College along the coast. He handed his card to her. I am aware of your school. I'm sorry to hear about your school president, Hamilton Fletcher. I met him on several occasions at faculty conferences. He once spoke as a keynote at one of our own conferences. Not the same without him, said Jones. Please, come in. What can I do for you, Mr. Jones? We came up here on behalf of P.J. Fletcher, the new president of Hamilton College. It's about Susan, isn't it? What? I still haven't gotten over it. She sat at her desk at the window overlooking the athletic fields out back. Ma'am, did you know Phil Curran? asked Coco. Know him? 
Everyone did. Coco stepped forward. What about the scholarship money? Oh, there were irregularities, all untraceable. Jones nodded. Is that why he left? No, it was Susan's death. Susan, asked Jones, what happened? She pressed her lips and her eyes glazed over. I was like an older sister to Susan. She loved taking photographs. And that's what she was doing high over the gorge. She shouted down how she had some great pictures. Philip was there on that hike. Philip? Again, she stared through him. This was a hiking club, obviously. We have mountains in northern New Hampshire. We had been on a dozen hikes through the school year. I slipped on the Wingate Trail last month, but I'm healing. But two years ago, I led the girls out for our nature hikes. How does Phil fit into this? Philip was along explaining his scholarship funds and how they could be applied to tuition. Boring as hell. I have to tell you, and I told the police this, Susan did not like Philip. He may have made a move on her, but she never said. Mind you, no one saw Philip on the trail or atop the cliffs. I could see it as if it happened yesterday, she said, leaning toward Jones. She had just taken a photo of the mountains ahead. She walked along the trail into the woods where she would have picked up the main trail to where we were below. I've hiked it many times. Then what happened? That's just it. She kept backing up as if she were talking to someone and slipped on the forward ledge. I can hear her scream tumbling over and over and that god-awful sound on the rocks. Jones's stomach tightened. Even Coco looked shocked with his eyes open. Did she know Curran personally? Asked Coco. Not that I know of. I mean, she knew who he was and she thought it was odd Philip would pool money into each department with no records. That seems to be his game, said Jones, now certain that PJ would fire Phil. Why was Karen really on that hike? asked Coco. Making contacts. You know, little snitches around campus, said Meg. She lowered her head and began crying. Jones put his hand on her wrist. I'm sorry you had to tell this story, Meg. She grabbed a tissue from a box on her desk. Philip was seen down the trail, but that was at least ten minutes later. We scampered over the rocks to the stream. It was clear that Susan was dead. Philip looked disheveled, his hair messed up, maybe a little short of breath. Did he know she had fallen? I don't know. We were all in shock. Did you ever talk to a Chet McLaughlin? Asked Jones. She wiped her nose. I received a message a few weeks ago from someone who had called. I don't recall the name. Did he mention Hamilton College? I didn't get the direct message. It came from Rosemary Warren. There was a number on the memo, but I seemed to have misplaced it. Then she looked Jones in the eye. Was this man looking into Susan's death? I don't know. He was doing an audit for our new president as well as checking the background information. Listen, I don't want to badger you anymore, Meg. If you find that memo, call me right away. Sorry to have brought all this stuff up again. I'm okay, I'm okay. You should go to the maintenance department. Philip had them working there for him like spies. She slowly looked up. Do not tell me what you find, Mr. Jones, because if Philip Carn was responsible for Susan's death, I'll kill him. Whoa, said Coco. Jones turned to Coco inside the elevator. Coco, that story was unbelievable. 
Cavendish, the wimp, was afraid to tell the story. Lawyers must have told him to clam up. Warren never told us about McLaughlin leaving a message. This puts the Phil thing in an entirely different context. Rossow didn't say she saw Curran on the cliff. She drew her own conclusions. Look, Jonesy, we could be in trouble digging into this Dexter thing. I guarantee you, Curran, for one, doesn't want this to come out. If he didn't do anything, why should he care? Hanging around this place could get a shot, said Coco. Agreed. We'll go to maintenance and then we're out of here. We should have brought Uncle Dulio. Jones looked him in the eye. I won't argue with that. Jones had just opened the outside door for Coco and then followed him to the side parking lot. Coco took a few steps toward the lower buildings down the hill as Jones panned a small chapel in front of the bare trees and snow. A vehicle slowly pulled from the upper lot and onto the highway. But then as he focused, he saw the pickup bed of what could have been a red truck and he heard a sputtering engine. He grabbed his phone to take a picture, but the vehicle disappeared below the snowbanks and along the road. Damn, he said, waiting for the movement beyond the snowbanks. Jonesy, what are you doing? Asked Coco as he backtracked. That's weird. What's weird? Come on, it's freezing out here. I could have seen the red pickup truck. Either you saw it or you didn't. It went behind the long snowbank. Look, Jonesy, I've seen guys get shot at, let's say by a bald-headed guy. For a while, you're jiggy and you start seeing bald-headed guys. Get my drift? Jones broke into a run and heard Coco grumbling back on the hill. When he reached the highway, the road dipped down even though the snowbank was even, and another road pitched downward toward a snowbank where firmly pressed wide tire treads in the snow. And then the tread crossed the highway toward the adjacent road. He snapped a few photos and then returned to Coco, who was smoking a cigarette as he rounded the corner. Where's your red truck, Jonesy? Jones pinned his pointed finger across the road. He veered down that road, and now he's gone. I hate to be the one to break this to you, sport, but there are more than one red pickup in New Hampshire. The engine was sputtering, said Jones. Come on, Jonesy, it sounds like one of Driscoll's wild stories. With a marginal cell phone signal, Jones placed a call to Kevin Phillips and described the red truck. Phillips perked up. Jones forwarded the snow tread picture. Cars and an occasional truck passed by. No tag? Asked Phillips. No, he hightailed out Kevin. Don't think I discount this at all, Matthias. You obviously saw a red truck and shots were fired at your Jeep the other night by a red truck. No, Kevin, shots were fired at me. Someone knows I'll be on this, and they want me out of the picture one way or the other. And you think it's Pereira. Let's run with that logic. How would he know you're in Moose Mills? Jones exhaled, but was afraid he'd lose his credibility if he mentioned the sputtering engine. Unless he's monitoring my calls, anything's possible. More than likely, he was on my tail and trailed Coco's vet up here. Franny's in Redondo Beach. Yeah. Do I detect some credibility? After a short silence, Phillips chuckled. We're running a check on red trucks with the Hampshire plates. How about other states? Switching plates would be clever. I'll look into it, compadre. Keep in touch, Kevin, said Jones as he ended the call. You feel better now, Jonesy? Jones flashed a smile, looked over his shoulder at the, as the two men started down the hill again. We'll see how well these maintenance guys knew Phil Curran, or if they knew anything about Dexter's death. 
I get it, but backing up to them rocks? No way. With Karin hanging around them hikers? Maybe she knew something. We'll see. The maintenance shed, more than a shed, consisted of three long buildings with weathered T-111 plywood siding. Trucks were parked in the spaces along the buildings. Plows and a mound of road salt were housed behind a cage fence to the right. As he stepped, Coco grinded his cigarette into the asphalt. Jones, growing more unnerved by Rostow's story about Susan Dexter, opened the metal door. Followed by Coco, he entered a lunchroom with empty tables. A cigarette odor hung in the stuffy air. Behind a glass window to the left, a pudge ball of a guy with a red stocking cap strolled into the lunchroom. He had a raspy voice. What can I do you for? Jones didn't have a ready answer, but the savvy Coco stepped forward. Phil Curran sent us. Philip don't work here no more. No kidding, pal. I said he sent us, growled Coco. Where's your boss? I'm right here, said a taller guy in green work clothes. Who the hell are you? Name's uh, Driscoll, said Coco, and Jones's head snapped to the right. Phil wants to know if everything is still under the radar up here. Why wouldn't it? He asked as he stood next to them. He had a square jar and was at least six foot six, about the height of Murph. Because, my man, some anal accountant is sticking his nose into all of Phil's business. Philip never could keep his mouth shut. That's a real news-breaking story. I'm up here to make sure that we keep the status quo. Yeah. What about you? He asked Jones, and Jones paused and then blurted out Arnie's name. You need to talk to Billy, said the tall man. We don't even know your name, said Jones. Let's keep it that way. Coco looked toward the name embroidered in red on the coat hanging on the rack. Where is he, Dave? His head snapped to the left. How do you know my name? I'm a mind reader, said Coco, slightly lifting back his coat so his gun was exposed. Dave glanced at the gun. His eyes were wide open. Billy's office is downstairs in the main building next to the boiler. He's my boss. Good for you, said Coco, dropping his leather coat over the gun. We don't want any trouble. Dave. I don't know nothing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Have a nice day. Coco walked slowly toward the outside door, followed by Jones. Once they were in the cold air again and the metal door closed, Jones looked at Coco. We're one step closer to getting our butts kicked, said Coco. Phil wouldn't be hammering those guys in the shed for scholarship money. They moved across the parking lot in the cold air, each man exhaling a steamy stream. Jones again checked toward the highway before heading toward the back of the main building. What's the matter, Jones? Are your friend in the red pickup pack up his toys and go home? Well, suppose it is Pereira or someone Johnny sent. You can bet tall Dave is on the horn right now with Billy, said Coco. And if they're in cahoots with Curran, they may call him. Good, let's talk to Billy. Coco stared at his friend. Sometimes I think you like trouble, Jonesy. You're right. Jones gazed up the building facade, reaching upward toward the passing clouds. He opened the glass and metal door. The boiler hummed in the warmer, dry air. A series of doors and offices extended along the back wall from the humongous green and chrome boiler. Three wood doors extended outward from some type of control room. The third door had a brass nameplate stamped Billy Rowland. Coco twisted the lock. He just left, said Jones, pointing at the wet boots on the concrete, heading into a corridor to his right. A lean man with dyed black hair walked around the boiler. 
He did not seem concerned that Jones and Coco were inside the boiler room. Hey, buddy, said Jones. You seen Billy? No, sir. What's your name? He had cigarettes and pens in his shirt pocket. Chester? You know Phil Curran, Chester? asked Coco. Yeah, everyone knew Phil. What about Susan Dexter? asked Jones. Phil raised a hundred thousand for Susan's scholarship. A hundred thousand bucks? asked Coco. Big bucks, Chester. Chester's brown eyes grew moist. Phil raised the money for a scholarship in her name. Just like that. He was a wheeler dealer. Chester, my man, said Coco. Why did this chick walk backward on the cliffs? We'd never figure that out. It cost her life. Billy knew Phil, asked Jones. Chester's laugh turned into a grunt. <laughs> Billy was Philip's go-to guy, like a slave. Phil snapped his fingers and Billy jumped. Chester leaned toward them and spoke in a whisper with his hand, cupped to his mouth. He was paid well. Coco looked at Jones. I see. Philip in trouble? Nah, this is just routine. Thanks for talking to us. Chester gave a vertical salute along the side of his head. Coco stared intensely at Jones for a second and then walked slowly toward the door. When they were outside, he stared toward the highway as he hiked up the hill. You just keep walking, Jonesy. Phil is somehow involved with Susan Dexter's death. Where the hell did the money come from? Sounds like Karin was laundering money. It's all hidden. I'm telling you, we're walking the line here, Jonesy. We're asking for trouble. Johnny's back in town. Chapter 13. Route 11 South, Moose Mill, New Hampshire. January 13, 3.40 p.m. What a waste of time, said Coco as he headed north on the two-lane highway through the mountains. The ice between the rock crevices looked like overflowing wax from a candle. The sound system pushed out Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Jones tilted his head between the dash readout and Coco in his leather jacket, piloting the vet. What's the matter, Jonesy? Don't you like Vivaldi? I like it. You were expecting some funk from Club Max, right? The vet picked up speed down the passageway between the craggy snow-blanketed mountaintops and the tall pine branches. Here's a piece of trivia. My mother told me my old man liked classical. Where do you think he is? Who knows, answered Coco. The autumn part of Vivaldi's seasons filled the vet. Jones was still amazed that Coco listened to classical. This is one big cluster. Karen was probably robbing these schools blind, funneling money into hidden accounts. And he may have had something to do with that chick falling off the cliffs. And Chet was linked to the x-ray. How does Phil Curran, a fundraiser, contact a hitman? Coco accelerated on a sharp turn down the valley. Hey, Coco, I'd like to live for the next game. Slow down. Damn! What's the matter? I got no brakes, Jonesy! Coco blessed himself, quickly followed by Jones. Somebody gave the word! The red pickup guy. He must have cut the brakes. Who cares who did it? We got no brakes! Coco swerved within inches of the icy rock crevices. How much further to the bottom? yelled Jones as his stomach wrenched. 
depends on which way we fall, yelled Coco as he fought to control the bed, fishtailing along the sandy road shoulder in the valley below. Too fast to downshift. As he veered onto the highway, another car shot up the hill and by inches flew into the right lane. Coco raced straight toward the ledge at the next turn and rocked back and forth down the hill into the other lane. For two miles, he repeatedly brushed the shoulder and then screeched the tires toward a long straightaway. Ahead was a flat stretch with the frozen lake on one side and a yellow grass field to the right. They slowly rolled to a stop on the road's shoulder. Coco banged the dash. Billy, that's where he was going. The wet boots on the concrete. They already knew we were here and Dave called them. The son of a bitch was ready to go. Cutting the brake lines only takes a second, man. Who gave Billy his orders, asked Jones. And Coco, he didn't have enough time. Don't be naive, Jonesy. Coco removed his cell and pushed in the number. Yeah, Ralphie, get on your traveling shoes. What? Kankamangus. Ten and change, south of Moose Mills, right, Route 11. You just keep it to yourself, but somebody cut the brake lines on the vet. No, don't call Charlie. I just want the lines fixed up here. What's that? Okay, 90 minutes. So what? What do you want from me, Ralphie? He's a loyal friend, said Jones. What are you talking about? Gets paid by the mile, Jonesy. Trading post is only a half mile north of here. I'll pull the vet up there in low gear. Thanks, said Jones. For what? Said Coco, scanning the area. Then they both got in the car. For knowing how to drive, said Jones. The red truck will return to check out his handiwork. They're expecting us to be dead. We're in a whole different league now, bro. This could be current or something to do with McLaughlin. Then we should call PJ. What's he gonna do? asked Coco. We need to handle this right here, right now. With a little help from Uncle Dulio. Oh, said Jones, slightly relieved. Coco looked over his shoulder and nudged the vet up the highway in low gear. He picked up the phone again and pushed the speed dial. He checked the speedometer and moved along the shoulder in the road at 8 miles an hour. Dulio, get the Beamer. What? Then bring your SUV. Listen, some clown just cut my brake lines. Right. You know where the trading post is. Right. I'll talk to you. On the right, a massive rustic wood sign for the trading post set the foreground for a huge parking lot filled with cars and trucks to the side lot. Coco, in first gear, slowed to a crawl. He was able to inch the vet into the side lot behind an 18-wheeler. Amazing, said Jones. Two things, Jonesy. Number one, we're not calling the cops. I figured that. What's the other thing? Every time I get involved with your shenanigans, my insurance rates skyrocket. Coco repeatedly checked the door of the spacious family-style restaurant. Jones was nervous, too. A constant coming and going of patrons moved in and out of the restaurant. Whoever cut those brake lines would be expecting a news report or a police scanner activity announcing the vets crashing in a fatal accident. Coco's phone rang. Yeah, Ralphie. Fifteen minutes? What do you mean Dulio's leading the way? Don't you have a GPS? Right. We're in the parking lot of the trading post. I didn't expect it to be this bad. Phil is hiding more than a little something, said Jones. You think? 
Chet may have been on to whatever Phil was doing up here or his association with Susan Dexter's death, said Jones. Someone would have told us if McLaughlin came up here. But he may have found out something on the phone, Coco. Jones blew into his hands and put on his gloves. Let me carry it a step further. What if Chet learned something so bad about Phil that it required a contract be taken out on Chet? Coco gestured with his hand, tapping Jones on the wrist. I told you, Curran doesn't have those connections, Jonesy. You just don't pull into the drive-up and order up a contract. We don't know what we don't know. Jones remembered when he was a kid, know how his dad had said that about the death of a police officer. Coco gave Jones a sickening look. What? You heard me, said Jones, smiling. Coco shook his head. He took a few steps forward and checked his watch and then looked up the highway. Here they come. Jones joined him at the vet. A few seconds later, Dulio's large brown SUV banked the corner, followed by Ralphie's record. Ralphie, stocking cap over his brown crop, leaped out of the cab as Dulio swung into a parking space. Ralphie, all I wanted was the brake line fixed. Suppose I can't fix it. It's just a brake line, he said as the bulky Dulio opened the SUV door and headed toward the wrecker. Jones turned toward the street as the headlights shined up the highway. A small truck, gray in the dim light, soon transformed to red under the halogen lights. Jones started toward the highway as the truck slowed and turned toward the parking lot. Coco drew his gun and ran forward. The truck jammed on its brakes and then spun 180 degrees. Jones couldn't see who was driving the vehicle. With screeching tires, the truck shot down the highway toward the old man in the mountain markers. Now what do you think? asked Jones, taking out his phone. Damn, anyone could be in that truck. New Hampshire plates, last three numbers, four, six, seven. Jones listened to Kevin Phillips' line ring. Kevin Phillips. He's at it again. First someone cuts Coco's brake lines. Somehow we're still alive. The red truck raced out of here to the south. That's the truck that shot at Franny and me. Last three numbers on a New Hampshire plate were 467. Where are you? Asked Phillips. We're at the Trading Post restaurant. That's in Moose Mills, correct? I'm calling Pinky Harris. We'll block the Kankamangas if we have to. I consider the driver armed and dangerous. Pereira said Jones. We'll find that out when we stop the truck. As for you, Matthias, I'd spend the night in the motel and stay off the roads. I'm putting you on hold. What did Phillips say? Asked Coco from the vet. Go to the motel until they find the truck, said Jones as he jogged back to the vet. He has no clue as to who could be driving that truck. I'm on hold. They approached Ralphie, who was under the car. What's going on, Ralphie? They destroyed the master cylinder on the brake lines. He crawled out from underneath the vet. Let me get the vet back to Prince William. Cops are going to want to examine the damage. Stay out of this, Jonesy. Get the vet back to PW, Ralphie. Dulio will stay here. Dulio! Yo! We're going to the motel. We'll get two rooms and we'll park the SUV around back. Call me tomorrow, Ralphie. Coco turned to a pensive Jones. What's the matter, Jonesy? How do we know he won't come back? Because his game is up. He saw us and my gun. Coco, Pereira's that crazy. He's not going to care about your gun. A wasted Jones lay spread eagle on the motel bed. Kevin Phillips had come back on the line to advise him the state police were on the way. He and Coco answered questions about the truck until Jones, 
threatened to get LG on the phone. They finally released the vet and Ralphie headed back to Prince William. Jones's cell rang as Coco stepped inside the room. Franny was calling from California. Matthias, I got your voicemail about the breaks. The news channel picked up a local report from Willard Cornball. We're okay. Jones flipped over on the bed. The red truck, Franny. What about it? May have been Pereira who cut those brake lines. Coco somehow drove that vet down through the mountains with no brakes. Incredible. Where are you now? The state police checked over the car. Dulio's up here. Ralphie is towing the vet back to Prince William. I feel better with that Sherman Tank Dulio with you. Me too. We were in the parking lot and Ralphie was checking the damage as the red pickup started to turn into the restaurant parking lot. Coco and I run forward and Coco draws his gun. The truck swings back on the highway. Who knows where he is now? Oh, he won't hang around, said Franny. That's what I thought. Are you guys heading back to Hamilton? Tomorrow. Phil Curran seems to have a scheme up here where he controls all the incoming money to the various school departments. Nobody knows how much money is even there. I don't know who did the accounting. I bet Chad knew. Exactly right, Franny. And there's more. One of the students, a Susan Dexter, died in a hiking accident a couple years back. Phil was on the scene. He killed her? He may have contributed to her falling into a gorge. Really? Nobody liked Phil up here. They called him Philip. They all hint that he was involved with the accident. Then he goes and raises $100,000 in funds for a scholarship in her name. We think he laundered money through the various departments. Something is fishy. He must have rich contacts. Great minds think alike, said Jones. I suppose Southern California is warm and sunny. The sun just set. It's supposed to be 83 tomorrow. My heart goes out to you, Fran. I heard it was 19 up there, said Franny. You tell Maureen to start looking for real estate. She mentioned it. I'll call or text tomorrow when we're out of here. Love you. You too. Don't get sunburned. I'll remember that at Disneyland. Yeah, I'll remember it when I'm scraping ice off my stocking cap, he said as she laughed. Good night, Franny. Night. As she shut off the light, Jones already missed her. Hey, said Coco, I just put a gun in the side drawer. Jones didn't argue. I think we can find out more about Dexter at the school tomorrow. Huh, is that right? We're dead meat if we hang around here more than a few hours. Tell that to Franny Sunshine. Susan Dexter must have realized what Phil was doing with that laundering money. Why else would he send her over the cliff? I ain't no lawyer, but you gotta prove it. When is PJ calling? I'm waiting for his text. <laughs> little Jack Horner. Jack Horner, that's a nursery rhyme, chuckled Jones. Why little Jack Horner? My aunt Angelica, Dulio's mother, used to read nursery rhymes to me. Oh, how cute. Shut up, Jonesy. The last line was, what a good boy am I. He's always blowing his own horn. You're right, he does. The Fletcher ego. Listen, I'm telling you, don't be afraid to use that gun, Jonesy. There's an extra clip in there and Dulio and I will be in the next room. Dulio gonna read nursery rhymes to you? Laughed Jones. Hey, you want me to send Dulio in here to talk about it? Jones saw him smile. Slip of the tongue. I'll talk to you. Over an hour later, Jones sat up when his phone vibrated. The text said PJ was canceling the call tonight and would talk to Jones tomorrow morning. 
That was just fine with Jones because PJ would insist that he and Coco leave Moose Mills. Jones then pulled the gun and the clip from the drawer and placed it under his pillow. He thought about Father Gallagher. During one homily, he remembered how Father said everyone before they went to sleep should list the things they were thankful for. He was grateful for Franny, his job, and friends. And he was grateful he was still alive after this afternoon. He was grateful that Coco was his friend. But most of all, he was grateful that Uncle Dulio was only 10 feet away in the other room. Johnny's Back in Town, Chapter 14, Trading Post Motel, Highway 11, Moose Mills, New Hampshire, January 14th, 12.06 a.m. Jones had drifted off after PJ's text. For a moment, between sleep and consciousness, he thought he heard Arnie Dewar's, or maybe it was a nightmare. Someone bumped the outside walkway support beam, rattling Jones. Still in his clothes, he opened the door to the cold air. Coco was already outside his room. I could swear I just heard that dumbbell doers, said Coco. Can't be. Coco's face soured. I'll stay over here with you, Jonesy. I can't sleep anywhere, said Coco. There must be something on TV. What about Dulio? Maybe I'd be sleeping in the other room if that bear would stop his snoring. Come on in. Maybe there's a game on. I talked to Charlie, said Coco as he moved inside. Jones slipped on the TV set. I told him I thought Curran ordered somebody to cut my brake line. What did he say? Charlie was not too happy. He asked if you were all right. He wanted to send out the claw after Curran and Pereira. I told him we needed more information. And what if Phil didn't order the brake lines cut? It's damn obvious what's going on here, Jonesy, said for the first time, admitting that Pereira was driving the red truck. Well, what about Johnny? Don't know. He wouldn't do it. Oh, he'd do it. Jones stopped the channel at an earlier report from Willard Cornwall. Sources close to District Attorney Herbert Lane confirm that a local youth is being sought as a person of interest. Person of interest, shouted Jones. That's the most milquetoast statement I've ever heard. This reporter will be sitting down with D.A. Lane for a one-on-one -on -one interview with the dynamic lawman next Sunday evening. Heh, <laughs> at least Lane didn't drop Pierre's name. I need to have Winky give Cornball the treatment. Dynamic, asked Jones, yawning. He better not mention my old man or Charlie. It's all done if he does that. I thought Bosco was unconscious with broken bones, said Jones. What are you talking about, Jonesy? Kip Bosco stood next to Cornball. He wore a Roman collar and a maroon button sweater. Your name? Reverend Bosco. Kip, the lip is all right, asked Coco. Now I've seen it all, Jonesy. Reverend, I'm sure your services will be appreciated by all concerned this evening. May the Almighty bring healing and devotion to the victims of this terrible tragedy. Masquerading as a priest? asked Coco. Well, I think he's a reverend, said Jones. This makes no sense. The door to the first floor opened. Hey, where are those girls, Buxta? That is Dewey's, said Coco. Coco leaned over and looked at the walkway below. 
This is the last thing we need tonight, Jonesy. Dewey's and his band of bozos. What the hell are they following us up here for? Jones heard footsteps below and somebody kicked the door against the wall downstairs. Who the hell are you? Driscoll, whispered Coco. Go ahead, take our wallets, added Arnie. Just don't hurt us. Dewey's is such a loser. A gruff voice with evil intent shouted. You bastards were at the school. Hey, you don't know what you're talking about, short stuff, said Bucky Driscoll. I'm gonna stuff that pepperoni pizza up your nose, Driscoll. Hey, the wallet is personal. Who's the gorilla? Hey, that's my sister. This wallet is disgusting, said the guy. You must think you're quite the stud, don't you, Driscoll? Heh, <laughs> I'm a legend. Yeah, so is Porky Pig. You're lucky the Iron Man ain't here, said Rose Brannigan somewhere inside. Shut up, doofus. Damn a fighting words in my country. Come on, put him up, put him up. Jones heard a smack. Our buddies from the Bucket of Blood Bar are on the way up here, said Arnie. Dewey's is the biggest liar I ever met. Dulio can't hear this, asked Jones. He can sleep through a train wreck, said Coco. Well, they ain't here now, are they, Dewey's? Hey, I have to warn you, this guy is trained in self-defense, said Bucky. Yeah, where'd you learn that from, the Muppets? growled the man. Huh? Then Jones heard another voice. Hey, those aren't the guys that were in the shed, Billy. Sounds like the big guy, Dave. This is bullshit. As he spoke, a black pickup pulled up outside the room. Two gargantuan guys in lumberjack shirts and a half dozen middle-aged women <laughs> emptied out of the truck bed. Whoa. What the hell? <laughs> said Coco. Hey, here comes Clem and Tommy the Jack. <laughs> yelled Arnie. Hey, boys, these two clowns threatened to kill us. They knocked out our buddy, Bose. The two women stayed in the parking lot, but Clem and Tommy the Jack disappeared inside. Furniture was thrown and glass broke. Then the two lumberjack guys carried Dave and Billy from Houghton Prep and Fireman's Carries out of the motel and deposited them in the dumpster. Uncle Dulio, in black sweatpants and a tank undershirt, exited the room. He stretched his huge muscles. What's happening? He asked. What's happening? asked Coco. We got Dewey's, Driscoll, and Brannigan, the Three Stooges, said Coco, looking over the balcony. Hey, Arnie, the girls need more beer. I got five cases in my truck, Buckster. I think I'm going to be ill, said Coco. Where are they? asked Dulio. They're in a room on the first floor, said Coco, nodding to Dulio, who nodded back. Then he marched to the outside stairs. This way, Jonesy. <laughs> they all descended the opposite stairs and faced Dulio about 30 feet away. Hey, baby, shouted Bucky as the music pounded from the speakers. Woo-wee, woo-wee. Coco pointed at room 16 and waved Dulio up the concrete walk. Jones peered inside. Bose was now conscious on the bed. There were beer cans strewn around the carpet and even on the bed. The two hefty men in lumberjack shirts played a video game to the left. But the woman, five of them, were an assortment of roller derby queens and women with huge teeth, maybe sisters. 
I say we go up to Canada and party all night, said Arnie. Yeah, unless you girls want some hanky-panky, said Bucky, his extended stomach filling a t-shirt with the old man in the mountain outlined in green. Red suspenders held up his hiking shorts. Arnie and Bowles wore the same shirt. Hey, Don Juan, shouted Coco. Bucky slowly turned. He was not wearing his glasses. Who goes there? Darth Vader, said Coco. He looked like a Swiss yodeler rodent. What's the password, buddy? Password is moron. Hey, your voice sounds familiar, said Bucky, putting on his glasses. Uh-oh. Coco! What are you jokers doing up here? asked Jones. Matthias, come on in and join the anniversary knot party. Party's over, doers. The two lumberjacks dropped their game controllers and stood. Watch it, we got muscle. You can't push us around. Yeah, you don't scare us, said Bucky, his eyelids heavy through his glasses. Yeah, right, asked Coco, stepping toward Arnie. Jonesy asked you a question, dummy. What are you doing up here? Want us to remove him? Asked one of the lumberjack guys, as if taking care of Dave and Billy was not enough. Yeah, Paul Bunyan, said Coco. Why don't you remove us? Both men slowly moved toward Coco and Jones. Jones wondered if Coco would pull his gun. Jones did not see Dulio enter the room, but caught sight of him racing like a linebacker toward the quarterback. Grunting with his bulky arms, the outstretched Dulio hoisted both men upward and forward. They crashed through the landscape painting on the wall, then the paneling and the outside clapboards, tearing a hole that a small truck could drive through. The cold air rushed in and Jones heard two quick sounds like cantaloupes being smashed. Dulio returned and faced Ernie. Get out of here, doers. Oh, yes sir, yes sir. Where's Driscoll? I'm not here, said Bucky in a muffled voice, half his body under the bed and his butt in the air. Dulio pulled him out from under the bed and hoisted him by his suspenders like a crane lifting an oversized jersey barrier. Then he sent Bucky skyward. Bucky bumped his head on the ceiling and bounced off the bed. The woman scattered, but Bo sat up in the other bed. Good morning to you. Out this way. Jones heard police sirens as Coco leaned into the room. You open your mouth, doers, and Dulio will mess up your horse face uglier than it is now. Arnie kept nodding as Coco followed Jones and Dulio out back. Jones stepped over the fallen lumberjacks. The sirens were louder now, blue and red light reflected around the outside of the motel. As they started up a rear stairway, Jones turned to Coco. What do we tell the cops? asked Jones. Nothing. Just get your stuff, Jonesy, and let's get the hell out of here. Dulio's car is around the corner in the other lot. Dulio traipsed along the upper walkway and disappeared into the room. The cruiser lights flashed brighter over the redwood slats. As Jones right, gathered up his things, he heard officers screaming at Arnie and Bucky. Dulio, gym bag in hand, exited his room. They descended yeah. the rear stairs and piled yeah, into Dulio's SUV, parked along the other wing of the lodge. Jones just stared at Dulio as he drove slowly around the building without his lights on as more cruisers descended upon the motel. You are right, Dulio? asked Jones. Yeah, answered Dulio, pulling onto the highway. Jones smiled. 
Clement and Tommy Jack were big boys. Dulio looked in the mirror. No leg power. You don't just lift him up, Jonesy, you know that. Football usually legs. Those guys have powerful arms, but no leg power. Coco turned to Jones. Nobody's gonna mess with Dulio. Johnny's back in town. Chapter 15. Coco's Bunker. East Crescent Street. Prince William, New Hampshire. January 14th. 3.22 a.m. Jones had not slept very well in the car as he and Coco returned to Prince William before dawn. Coco suggested the three of them should split up and meet at the P.W. Diner at 7 a.m. Dulio slept in his room at Rita Stefani's house and Coco said something about going over to the club. Rita had opened the sliding door in one of the bedroom closets. She escorted Jones into Coco's lower set of suites below ground. Rita, hugging Jones, was relieved that they had all survived Moose Mills. Below the counterlip was a small button that connected to an oven timer upstairs. This buzz is different than the cooking timer. Jones looked into her hazel eyes. Thanks. You're like a son to me, Jonesy, she said, embracing him again. You take care, hon. Jones pressed his lips as she returned upstairs. He was touched by her feelings and felt the same way about her and her whole family. Before he went into the side bedroom, Jones poured himself a glass of orange juice. He sent an encrypted email about the red truck and the brakes, as well as his suspicions about Phil Curran to PJ. Dulio's extraordinary takedown of the two lumberjacks. As he finished the OJ and smacked his lips, he placed the glass in the sink, but when he turned, shadows formed in the hallway. Jones's stomach twisted out of the dim light, a man around 5'9", Wearing a deep purple silk shirt, his tie askew, stepped into the kitchenette. The scar rising upward from his brow onto his forehead signaled his identity. When he smiled, he had the smile of a charmer. His voice was smooth with an unrattled demeanor. Hello, Jonesy. Jones sensed a lump in his throat. Mr. Stefani? Johnny. Johnny. Jones stepped forward and shook his hand. Although Johnny had smooth hands, his grip was strong. Nice to meet you. His dark brown eyes had Coco's shape and intensity. Jones nodded. On many levels. You think I killed Jigsy Moran? No, sir. Are you just saying that or do you mean it? I don't play games, said Jones, astounded that he had used those words to one of the most powerful underworld figures in the country. Johnny fixed a smile. No, you don't. You're my son's best friend. Jones nodded again. We watch out for each other. Rita's told me what you two have been through together. Why were you at the Bolorama? asked Jones. Johnny smiled again. I like that. Direct. He said, motioning with his arm. Let's sit down. You want a drink? No, I'm all set. Johnny had the same swagger as Coco, and his profile was remarkably similar to his son. He pulled out a small bottle of liquor from under the counter and quickly mixed it with some refrigerator ice. Jones sat in the leather recliner in front of the huge TV, and Johnny reclined in a gray fabric chair to the right. I'm not sure what you know and uh, how smart you really are. Chet McLaughlin was working behind a petition at the X-Ray Club in Dedham, Massachusetts. Yeah, exactly. Johnny smacked his lips from the drink. Only I didn't know it for a long time. How did you find out? Asked Jones, pushing back the recliner. Stripper. Hannah. 
Are you a coach or an investigator? Depends. She was uh, on stage practicing a routine. That son of a bitch, Dom Fiore, wore a fedora like me. Even applied a makeup scar. He had my voice down pat. You were number two with Norm Pelletier and the Fiore's wanted power. Hey, pal, you're right on this. They forced me out of the area. Then they moved in on Norman. How so? They took him out in the zone with Mickey Snowden. I was in Vegas by then, and Hap Ellis, he didn't have the guts to stop him. Snowden funded Hamilton College buildings. No kidding. So you didn't order the contract on Chet. That's correct. How'd you find out about it? <laughs> Clyde and I go back a long way. He was with me in Boston in the day, and he followed me to Vegas. Clyde and uh, me, we know a lot of people, not just in Vegas. We don't know who took out the contract. It was independent. And you saw nothing unusual after the hit. There were only a few ways out of that alley. The lower door was locked, said Jones. Some guy bumped into me and said something to me in French. What's blowing my mind is that the contract was for 125000 Look, not to berate Chetty, he did all right for himself. Sharp guy. To spend 125 k on Chetty was dumb. Don't mean to sound cold or nothing. No, no, that fact is critical. Dom ever know Chet Sarm killed Jigsy Moran? Nah, Dom is local to Chicago. It's a standoff, Jonesy. We get him, they get me. Johnny set the drink on the end table. When I found out about the Chetty contract, we passed word that reached to Chetty. He hired security around his house and on his daughter and wife. How do I find out who took the contract? Johnny shook his head. Clyde and me were alerted. Do people we know the probability of the hit at that alley to take place last Friday? We were armed and ready to take out the mechanic. Now I know about the elevator shaft. No fool he. Wait, Jonesy, why would somebody snap at you in French? Maybe from Canada. <laughs> there are French assassins. Wouldn't that be something? We know who they are. Coco figured out the elevator shaft before the cops. <sighs> said Jones as he yawned. Sorry. That's because he don't think like a cop. Jones laughed with the chair fully extended. <laughs> What's so funny? Coco said the same thing. You gotta think like a criminal. Johnny returned the smile. What about that kid, Mark Piera? He's working for somebody, nobody I know. Jones' eyelids were about to close. Phil Curran. Don't know him, but I can pass word around. You think he took out the contract? Yeah. Yeah, I think his past would sink him. And Chet was doing a full audit of the college for P.J. Fletcher. Phil is a fundraiser and has done that in the past. Not above board. Looks like he laundered money through the colleges he worked at. Interesting. PJ security people are checking Curran's past. Jonesy, if Curran's past is bottled up, we can find out things others can only dream about. You want us to take care of it? My gut tells me he took out Chet. Consider it done. Jones closed his eyes and gave up, trying to stay awake. When his watch alarm sounded, Jones awoke with a lightweight beige blanket spread over the recliner. He laughed at the thought of a prominent gangster spreading a blanket over him in the recliner. In his right hand was a handwritten cell phone number. He tucked it in his wallet. Although no light entered the bunker from outside, Jones checked the clock. 
At 6.30, he barely had enough time to shower and get to the PW diner. Julio was just finishing his breakfast upstairs and drove him downtown on the SUV just under the Prince William side of the Crosstown Bridge. The yellow PW diner with the green painted aluminum roof was a relic from a half century ago. Its arched windows were steamy with thick glass that magnified the patrons inside. Even the parking lot was compressed between the diner and a dirt road to 16th Street. Mostly working men filled the PW diner's side booths and chrome counter stools. Conversations produced a low-level buzz and the smell of breakfast selections lingered in the warm air. By the way, Winky called me last night. That Reverend Bosco is Kip's twin brother. There's two of them? Asked Jones. Yeah, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Jones paused with his third mug of coffee as Uncle Dulio began another round of sausage and pancakes. He turned to Coco and was about to tell him about Johnny. Look, Coco, I've been trying to tell you something. <laughs> He's an eating machine, Jonesy, said Coco, finishing the scrambled eggs. Gotta get him ready if the lumberjacks come back. You won't hear a peep out of Dewey's after Dulio steamrolled them lumberjacks and destroyed the wall. Jones glanced at Dulio, wiping a folded piece of French toast in the maple syrup. Anniversary not, said Dulio. Ah, what a Dewey's his stunts, him and the rodent. That old fool, Brannigan, Mo Larry and Curly's. With my apologies to Mo Larry and Curly. Will you listen to me, Coco? Whoa! Jones's phone rang and PJ's icon appeared on the screen. Hello, PJ. Tobias Victor called me this morning from a hotel outside the San Joaquin Multisource University. His men received anonymous information early this morning about a man named McKnight also had an affiliation to Las Vegas. Jones thought about what Johnny had promised him late last night about information. And Phil has ties to a financial brokerage house in New York City. What was he doing? asked Jones. Frankly, I don't know where this information came from, but Victor was told to investigate money laundering. Yesterday, Phil supposedly left for a conference in D.C. If I remember correctly, Phil once worked in D.C., said Jones. Sounds like a massive scam, including Hamilton College, said PJ. What about Pereira? No sign of him. The whole Northeast is looking for this kid. After your email and my talk with Lieutenant Phillips, you guys must have nine lives. Let's meet later today. Sounds as if Phil is in big trouble. I forwarded Victor's report to Phillips. Glad you're all in one piece. Me too. We'll talk later. Bye. Bye. Jonesy, what gives? Phil is in Washington. Victor is closing in on him because of information he received. That's what I need to talk to you about. Yeah, right. Coco took a gulp of coffee from the mug. Listen, what I need to know is what happened to that chick on the cliffs. Something's not right with Dexter nosediving under them rocks. Jones put down the money for the three bills. He stared at Coco but was thinking about how fast Johnny had made things happen. You done, Dulio? asked Coco. For now, said Dulio, standing. He stuffed an end piece of toast into his mouth. Jones approached Coco at the diner door. Phil's operation is about to fold. Now, how do you know that, Jonesy? asked Coco as they moved outside. Because your father said he'd take care of it. What? He was in the bunker. He said he went to the Bolarama to stop Chet from being killed. 
They heard about the contract on Chet. I wouldn't believe a word he says. He said he'd take care of Phil Curran. I gave him the background information. If they think Curran killed McLaughlin, my old man will have Curran killed. Let's get in the SUV. Jones turned, only to see the pockmarked Piera in a denim jacket pointing toward a rifle from the hood of a Ram 1500 extended cab red pickup truck. There were dark circles under his eyes and a beard growth of a few days. Now it all makes sense. Coco moved his hand downward. You go for that gun, Stefani, and I'll shoot you dead, said Pereira. You're a punk coward, Pereira, said Coco, moving his hand away from his coat. Guns on the ground, you two Jones and the big guy. Coco set the gun on the pavement. Pereira picked up the gun. I have no gun, said Jones. I don't need no gun, said Dulio, stepping closer. You listen to me, big guy. Dulio straightened up and clenched his fist. What do you want? You'll be driving the ram. Stefani and Jones in the front with you. I'll be in the back seat. Place your cell phones on the back seat. Where's Karin? asked Coco. Who? asked Pereira, keeping the lightweight rifle aimed at them as he kicked open the pickup door. How much did he pay you? yelled Jones. Pereira's upper lip curled as he stared at Jones with dark, cruel eyes. You've been my biggest obstacle, Jones. You kept me on the run with no brakes. I thought you'd both die in the mountains. Sorry to disappoint you. Get 1,000 per body from my boss. Current, said Jones. Hey, let us go and I'll double it, said Coco. Don't make me laugh. <laughs> You'll get yours, Pereira. Okay, everybody in the truck. Dulio got behind the wheel as Coco followed Jones in the other side. Pereira slid into the back seat. All the cell phones were scattered across the seat. Pereira stuck the rifle to Dulio's head. Just where the hell are you taking us, scum? Asked Dulio bluntly. Pereira retracted the rifle. Start the truck. Dulio turned the key and the powerful engine rumbled. Drive us to Island 7 off of Ponset Point by the jetty. That's the old Potts River refuge plant, said Coco. The other side of Observation Point. That plant is shutting down for good. Not yet, said Pereira. Dulio backed out and drove along the dirt road. Then he swung out of the Crosstown Bridge ramp. The entire truck resonated from the powerful engine. They soon passed the docks on Canal Street. The trucking terminals and unloading cranes were just ahead. How much money will it take for you to let us go? asked Jones. Not interested, Jones. I'll be rich in time, not on the run. They'll never know what happened to you three. Jones slightly turned. And Phil Curran will keep doing what he's doing. You said it, not me. If you're gonna kill us, what the hell does it matter? asked Coco. Shut up. Now they were on a poorly paved service road with industrial roads and cinder block buildings along the way. The Crosstown Bridge was behind them now as they bounced along the harbor. Just a few hundred yards away on island number seven, the Potts River Refuge Plant's towering black smokestack was backlit by the early morning sun. Why are we going to the plant? yelled Coco, now becoming agitated. You lived here all your life, Prince William Stefani. You know what happens at eight o'clock. Yeah, the furnaces used to begin heating up. In 15 minutes, they become red hot. But that was before they closed this place down. 
It ain't closed this morning, said Pereira. They used to burn out the remaining crud before the shipments arrived at 10. This morning, it'll be started manually. Phil convinced you for money. You did everything for money, said Jones. I didn't know McLaughlin was going to be killed, Jones. I was told to do certain things at the Bullarama by Phil Curran. Jones had wondered about that ever since the shooting. No, but you knew what was going to happen with the plastic explosives. I would be killed if I didn't play ball, he said as he looked ahead. Take a left at Island 7's entrance, big guy. Dulio turned onto the crushed cinder road toward several corrugated metal buildings on the right and a conveyor belt leading up to the base of the smokestack. They'll find you, pal, said Coco. The feds, the stadies, local cops, they're all looking for you. Along with my friends in Boston, they'll cut you up like dicing meat. Like I give a damn. I'll change my name and I'll work somewhere else. Dream on, said Coco. Jones gazed upward at the seagulls flocking around the harbor. The stack rose several hundred feet into the blue sky over the Potts River, flowing from the Devonshire Hills into the saltwater estuaries. To the right were at least a dozen loading docks to the buildings, where he assumed the trucks used to unload the rubbish onto the conveyor belt. Why not just kill us and throw our bodies in a dumpster, asked Jones, stalling for time. Because then, coach, you wouldn't be able to watch the burners ignite and sizzle your bodies to the bone. Screw you, Pereira, said Coco as he tried to grab the rifle, but Pereira thrust the barrel at him. It's try, tough guy. Coco seethed in deep-felt anger. We're not stepping inside that burner. You have no choice. Pereira looked to his right. Pull into bay 16. Julio started the turn and the tires crunched on the crust cinder. But then he slammed his foot on the pedal and accelerated like a driver at Indy. The SUV hit the concrete dock at high speed as the airbags deployed. Pereira fired the rifle and Julio grabbed his shoulder and emitted an animalistic groan. You son of a bitch, cried Coco. Again, Pereira pointed the gun at Coco. Julio! You're a dead man, Pereira, roared Dulio, holding his bloodied shoulder behind the airbag. Jones, recovering from the airbag, smacking him against the seat, slowly moved his hand on the chrome door latch. Don't do it, Jones, Pereira shouted. Everybody, out of the car. My uncle needs medical attention. Too bad, out of the car. Pereira marched them around the front of the ram. Dulio's brown jersey was blood-soaked in round patches on both sides of his shoulder. Incredibly, he was alert and his dark eyes were set on Mark Pereira. Pereira moved him up the metal dock stairs. He had planned this well, or maybe Phil Curran was involved. Pereira pushed a red button to raise the bay door ahead. Between the angled black conveyor belt was an attached aluminum ladder and fire hoses. Julio, holding his shoulder, stared down at Pereira. Phillips has orders to shoot you on sight, said Jones. When I don't check in with him, don't bullshit me, Jones. Everyone, climb the stairs. Dulio, can you make it up the stairs? Dulio nodded once. Jones sensed Dulio would destroy Pereira if given the chance. Jones followed behind Coco and Dulio. His father had a phrase for this situation. Terminally terminal. Shut your mouth, Jones, Pereira called from behind. Within the charred smells 
pungent foul air, they reached the opening. Inside a metal rim lining was a lower area with crisscross rods at least 30 feet below. The blue sky was visible through an opening where the smokestack touched the sky. Jones prayed silently for a way out of this impossible situation. Pereira pushed another button and the motor hummed as a metal platform moved out of the wall to the right. When it reached a certain length, it flipped over above the round grill at the bottom of the smokestack. On the platform, Stefani. I ain't stepping on no platform, said Coco, spitting on Pereira. Dulio rushed forward and Pereira shot him in the leg. Dulio buckled and fell onto the platform. Jones took a step forward, but Pereira fanned the gun. Unbelievably, Dulio pulled himself up. Pereira pushed the rifle forward and forced Jones onto the platform. Coco rushed Pereira, but was shot below the ribs and collapsed onto the rusted floor. Pereira then kicked Coco onto the platform. With the rifle pointed toward them, he hit the control button and they began moving down toward the grill. You have 15 minutes until the burners start, <laughs> Pereira said as he laughed from above. We gotta kill that bastard, said Coco, breathing heavily as the blood leaked onto the rusted platform. He was clearly losing blood from his side. I knew he was working with Curran. Dulio dragged his leg as he moved to the other side of the platform and panned the grid below. Nothing to grab onto. I don't want to die for the likes of him, said Coco in a low voice. At the edge of the rim, Phil Curran, dressed in a brown suit with a yellow tie, put his hands on his hips. Not many people get to anticipate the end of their lives, Jones. He can go to hell, said Coco, not looking up. Pereira stood next to Phil. What makes you think Fabulous Phil won't kill you, Mark? Asked Jones, looking up. Mark will be a rich man, said Phil. He's lying, Mark. Doesn't matter, Jones. You're all done. From below, he heard the ignition of the burners like flaming jets of an acetylene torch. Instantly, the area warmed. Dulio kept looking around, but there was no way out. Can't stand the heat, boys? asked Phil. Dulio ripped open Coco's shirt and wrapped it around his ribs to stop the bleeding. The intense air heated quickly as sweat beaded on Jones's forehead. Coco lay on the platform half-conscious as Phil's hysterical laugh echoed around the base. Gruff voice Jones instantly recognized resonated over the blazing fire jets below. Pereira twisted and then swung the rifle toward Johnny Stefani. Now dressed formally in his fedora hat and a shorter man with a mustache, moved forward with handguns drawn. Jones heard two shots. Herrera flipped into the air and hit the grill hard, like the sound of a baseball to a wood bat. Raise that platform, said Johnny. Who the hell are you? yelled Phil. Raise the damn platform. I, I don't know where it's connected said Phil in a shaky voice. Don't hurt me. Along the conveyor, a ladder, called Jones from the heated platform below. Get it, shouted Johnny. The metal platform was now hot enough to cause Jones to stand. When Coco groaned, the wounded Dulio tightened the shirt as sweat beaded on Jones's forehead. He tensed his wide face and hoisted Coco as if he were pressing hundreds of pounds in a competition. 
Clyde and Phil slid the aluminum ladder over the side as the dry heat tortured Jones' skin. He secured the ladder on the platform. Julio, with two substantial wounds, his shoulder still oozing blood, stepped onto the ladder. He carried Coco as if he were merely climbing a set of stairs. Jones, his skin scorched, moved up behind him. When Julio stepped onto the rim, Johnny and Clyde pulled him forward. The fire jets behind Jones climbed up the walls. Johnny helped Jones back and onto the outside stairs. Jones felt like a battery, losing power, but at least the outside air was cold. Let me go. I helped you guys, said Phil from the rim entrance. I'll disappear. You'll never hear from me again. Yeah, you'll disappear, said Johnny, looking back at Dulio. You put out a contract using McKnight out of Vegas and my friend Chetty, and then you finished him off with Pereira. He's got a gun, Johnny, yelled Clyde. The trauma was too much for Jones. His legs buckled and he hit the metal floor near the top of the stairs. Then he heard two distinct shots cracking and echoing like gunfire in a canyon. Phil Curran's whimpering voice then faded below. Rest in peace, Chetty, said Johnny clearly. Rest in peace. Dulio added another layer of cloth around Coco's wound as Clyde called 911. Jones knew he was dehydrated and had trouble staying conscious. His skin felt as if he had been sunburned for days. Hold on, boys, for another ten minutes. Then he knelt down next to Coco. We're getting your help, son. Hang tough, hang tough. You saved us, you son of a bitch, whispered Coco, smiling. I know, Coco, I know, said Johnny, returning the smile. I need water, said Jones in a raspy plea. We'll get your water as soon as we can, Jonesy, said Johnny, still on one knee next to Coco and Dulio. Clyde, check for a water spigot. EMTs are on the way, said Clyde as he began searching for water. How, how, how did you know we were here? Said Jones in a voice like a rusted tin. You phoned, Jonesy. When you went to sleep, I linked it to mine for tracking. Jones produced a huge smile, and then he went out. The air was cooler, the light dimmer, and several people sat in chairs near a window. He was wrapped in an antiseptic cloth and his exposed skin was covered with a soothing gel. I'm dead. Jones heard Gallagher's voice. Hardly. Jim, you died too. Father, all of creation rightly owes you thanks and praise. Gallagher blessed himself. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Franny. He's flying to Manchester, Matthias. She knows you'll make it. Another 30 seconds, you would have been roasted for Thanksgiving. Where's, where's Coco and Dulio? Gallagher wiped his eye. Coco is out of surgery. He'll be hung up for a while, but he'll make a full recovery. Dulio is opening Club Max with Bruno. You've got to be kidding. He was wounded twice. He saved Coco's life. Kevin Phillips rushed in behind one of the nurses. It's about time you woke up. Jones half smiled. I've been ordered by P.J. Fletcher to tell you he's on his way. Apparently his security people located a man in Vegas named McKnight on a tip from an unknown caller. The FBI have him in custody. Jones thought about Johnny. I've heard the name McKnight before, said Jones. No doubt you have. Current's contacts in Vegas were established when he was on the West Coast. McKnight set up the contract on Mr. McLaughlin. I know. Well, how do you know? 
I just do. You'll be happy to know about Pereira's truck. We traced the VIN number. It was registered to San Joaquin Multisource University. It disappeared when Karen went to Houghton. He switched the plates from her car housed and unused on the Hamilton campus. And your tire tread snapshot matches the Ram truck. Ah, vindicated, said Jones, growing slightly fatigued. Phillips grinned and flipped open his notebook. According to the FBI, Karen also confessed to McKnight that he chased Dexter onto the cliffs on that hike you told me about. He scared her backward and was responsible for her death. And who knows if Mr. McLaughlin had figured that out. Curran may have thought he did, said Jones. As far as Johnny goes, both Pereira and Curran drew guns and Johnny defended himself. That's what he said, said Phillips. Julio saw it, Coco saw it, Johnny's friend Clyde saw it. Jones closed his eyes for a moment. Herbert Lane will try and go after Johnny. Matthias. I got news for you. Herbert Lane is not going to prosecute Johnny Stefani, believe me, said Phillips. And here's the kicker. That old guy, Elmer. What about him? asked Jones. He knew most of the parts of the crime. The sleuth, the shoe slot, the lights being turned on by Bum, Pereira in the game room, even the assassin in the storage room. He just couldn't put it together. I blame myself said Phillips. I discounted him because he was an old man. I just didn't help him reconstruct what happened. Neither did I, said Jones. Well, that's how we learn in life, replied Gallagher. At least it's over. I thought we were goners, said Jones, panning from Phillips to Gallagher. Gallagher leaned closer to Jones in the hospital bed. Do you know how many times God has pulled you out of the fire, Matthias? He certainly did this time, Father. Johnny's Back in Town, Epilogue, Club Max, 45 Front Street, Prince William, New Hampshire, April 19th, 9.20 p.m. Months after Chet McLaughlin's murder and the investigation, Jones looked forward to his pending marriage to Franny McShane at St. Bart's in an ecumenical service. The music was funky inside Club Max, and lots of people were dancing in the swirling colored lights. Franny hung on to Jones at the bar as Coco, still using a cane, hobbled over to him. Jones held up his beer mug. What do you hear, Coco? He shouted over the music. The judge ruled the trucking company was responsible for the water and the yo-yo gas. Well, how do we know Arnie didn't tamper with that truck? Asked Jones. Dewey's added water to the truck, but there's no proving it. That's the bad news. What's the good news? The French mechanic was named Merced. The guy who shot McLaughlin is dead. My old man told me what you told him about bumping into that guy mumbling in French after the shooting. They figured out his movements. Amazing, said Jones, and what else? Phillips sent the report to match my old man's DNA with mine. We already knew he was in the restroom foyer, but that's not the main event, Jonesy. You're not going to believe this, either one of you. Living up here as long as I have, I'm ready for anything. Go, go, said Bruno near the bar. Winky says he's ready in the back office. Good, said Coco, snuffing out the cigarette. He grabbed his cane with a brass mermaid and turned to Jones. Remember Dewey's anniversary nod at Moose Mills? 
They started along the bar and across Club Max. Yeah, an excuse to follow us up to Houghton. No, that's not it, Jonesy. Lester Lawson, Dewey's, and Driscoll know about it, and Bo's brain again, the drunken fool, and Muddy Jacobs. I wouldn't believe anything Arnie says, said Franny. I agree with you 100%, Franny, said Coco. Winky's been working on this for weeks. He's got the video. Just what did they do up there? Didn't the cops throw them out of town after they were released from the Moose Mills jail? That's true, Jones. He do had a bill for 22,000 bucks. He supplied the materials to fix their own. Come on, Coco, what's the secret? What video? I can hold this over Dewey's head forever. What about your father and Dominic Fiore's murder trial? My old man doesn't have to testify at the trial and neither does Charlie. Bentley took the written statements under oath. If McLaughlin hadn't written a memo about Moran's murder at the X-ray, nothing would have happened. Bentley had the papers in his office and Bentley had the smarts to have McLaughlin's wife testify under oath what McLaughlin told her about the hit on Moran and the stripper. There's a boatload of witnesses who heard that babe mouthing off. That must give your father some latitude. Karen would have killed us all in the burner, Jonesy, if the old man and Clyde hadn't shown up. The old man and me, we spent a lot of time together during my recovery. Came to see me every day for four weeks. Going out to Vegas? Asked Franny. I might. I have to help Dulio train first. Train for what? Asked Franny, with a look of incredulity on her face. The Iron Man competition. After what happened to him, asked Jones, the man was severely shot twice. I couldn't believe he carried you up that ladder. Tulio doesn't mess around. Well, that's the God's honest truth. Oh, Jonesy, uh, Cornball went to work in Lane's office. Official spokesman. Oh, what a surprise, said Jones, realizing from behind how bad Coco had been shot by Pereira. Winky in baggy jeans and a white sweatshirt waved at Coco. He walked into the rear office as if his feet were stuck out sideways. You got it, Winky? Con my phone, boss. Do us know you have it? Negatory. Winky produced a chirping laugh as they moved from the bar into the rear office. <laughs> Me and Alvin stole the original signal off Bluetooth at Driscoll's apartment. Jones smiled at Franny. Better watch my phone's Bluetooth. Coco pulled back the folding doors. You can project it on the TV, Winky? No, son. No projection. It's on airplay. Whatever, said Coco. Just get the damn thing up there, Winky. Winky moved his fingers around the phone. Then a diagram appeared on the overhead screen. One second. This is 2003? Yeah. Do is. Lester Larson and Muddy Jacobs. They bet Dewey's a hundred bucks that he couldn't bounce on one of them mini trampolines. What's the big deal about that? asked Jones. <laughs> Let him finish, Jonesy. A blue screen appeared with the white letters on the TV. May 2nd, 2003. The videotape was put into digital, said Winky, as Arnie Dewey's, considerably younger and with wood grain glasses and thick dark hair, appeared close to the camera. The camera light illuminated his large nose with darkness all around, but Muddy was not too steady with the camera. 
He fanned from side to side and his hands shook. Night of the living dead, said Franny. Is it on, Muddy? Hey, this is Arnie, dear devil doers. The bottom of the screen had the date and the elapsed time, 5-02-2003. Franny rolled her eyes. Some things never change. Tell him where you are, Arnie. Shut up, Lester. This is my show. You don't have the cojones to do this. The camera swung downward to a mini trampoline sitting on a series of rocks. I don't think you have the guts either, said Lester. Oh yeah, replied Arnie. No one's ever gonna do this again, Lester. Yeah, unless you fall off and croak, said Muddy, laughing, his voice amplified by the camera. He's gonna jump on that trampoline, I don't get it, said Jones. You'll see, said Winky. Arnie stripped down to his blue tank top, checked his shoelaces, and then carried the little trampoline over the rocks ahead. Muddy and Lester began yelling. Arnie set down the trampoline and then crawled onto the surface, facing the camera. He lit a cigarette. This is Arnie Dewis on May 2nd, 2003, standing on my little trampoline atop the old man in the mountain. No way, said Franny. Jones's mouth slowly opened as Arnie, glowing cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth, began jumping up and down on the trampoline. The trampoline slid slightly on the rocks. Dewis is a first-class moron, said Coco. Occasionally, Arnie would bounce out of the picture for a second. Hey, Arnie, something just cracked over here. Ah, you worry too much, Muddy. Looks like the ledge is moving when you move, buddy, said Lester. Zippity-doo-da, zippity-yay, my oh my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine hit my way, zippity-doo-da, zippity-yay. The last zippity-doo-da, Arnie bounced on the trampoline and the rock ledge snapped like a tree hit by lightning. Arnie and the rock slid forward with Arnie yelling, Buddy! The screen went dark, but the audio tapered away. Where the hell is he, Lester? Said, asked Muddy. He's riding the rock slide, said Lester. Go, Arnie, ride the wave! Arnie, 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 Arnie! When the next sequence began, Arnie stood next to a lake at sunrise. He had slid a band-aid over his nose and was minus his glasses. You're on, Arnie, said Muddy. Hey, dear devil do is here, said Arnie, another cigarette in his mouth. I rolled the old man down the mountain. Never been done before. Muddy pinned the camera upward where the old man had stood for centuries was now a chipped away ledge. Through his sniffles, Muddy spoke to Arnie. You, you, you killed the old man at the mountain, Arnie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cops find out. They'll put you in jail and throw away the key said Lester. You owe me a hundred bucks, Lester. Oh, you were on the mountain and you slid down the mountain. Ah, oh, you cheap son of a... It'll never be the same. Everyone will be brokenhearted. Hey, don't worry, buddy, said Arnie, tossing the lighted cigarette into the scattered leaves. They'll get over it. The screen went back to the beginning. 
Jones looked at Coco. I saw it, but I don't believe it. I always knew Dewey's was soft in the head, but I'm gonna hold this over that monkey till doomsday. Thanks, Winky, said Coco. Jones shook his head to Franny. Arnie Dewey's is responsible for destroying New Hampshire's premier landmark. It's okay, Jonesy. You'll get over it. Once again, the indestructible Dulio, after being shot twice, still manages to carry Coco up a ladder as if he were bringing in the groceries to the house. Ani Duas retains his title as king of risky behavior, and the stunt at the old man in the mountain is glorified on videotape. That's the Jones book. Johnny's back in town. I hear the plane. The plane, boss. The plane. Adios. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.